Okay, this is uh, week three of our uh, Table 101 class, and um, we're taking what we did in about nine weeks last time. We really took our time last time, uh, and we're condensing it into about four weeks and um, planning on probably offering something like this uh, once or twice a year just for folks who are new to the church and new to Anglicanism, uh, etc. So uh, we're looking forward to it. This week we're going to talk about sacraments and worship. So there's a lot uh, that goes into that. Um, why don't we pray before we start? Is that okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the presence uh, of your spirit that is with us in this place. I pray that uh, illumination would come to us in Revelation, that we would see um, your kingdom more clearly through uh, the teaching and the discussion today, that we would be empowered to participate more fully in the life that you share with us and with your son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, sacraments and worship. Uh, quote from Elizabeth Barrett Browning uh, to start us off. This is a famous quote. Many of you have probably heard this. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. I think Elizabeth Barrett Browning's quote gets at what the sacraments are meant to do for us and what a, it, it's meant to open us. It's not just these two things that we do, baptism and communion, that are things that, well, Jesus said to do them, and so let's do them. Who knows what's happening here? Let's, let's just do what Jesus said to do, right? Uh, that's not a bad impulse, but that's not all that's going on in the sacraments. The sacraments are meant to wake us up to the fact that earth really is crammed with heaven, to wake us up to the fact that heaven is among us, to wake us up to the fact that the kingdom of God is here, uh, that we live in an enchanted world. It is another way to say it. Um, the definition of the sacraments, according to the Book of Common Prayer, is that the sacraments are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual graces. So they are, it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given by Christ. All of these words are really important, right? So it's an outward visible sign of something that's inward and invisible. It's given to us by Christ as a sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. Okay? So these, the sacraments are given by Christ. They are outward and visible. You can see them, touch them, you know, uh, participate in them physically. Uh, but they represent an inward grace. And that inward, the outward sign is given to us as a sure and certain means by which we receive the grace. Okay? So we receive the grace through the outward sign. That's what a sacrament is. And so sacramental theology says that God is present in creation and working through creation. Right? And how do we know that? Well, because he works through bread and wine and water and words and touch and oil. Right? God works through these things to show us that God is actually at, always at work through creation. So God is present in creation. God works through creation through the sacraments. So the sacraments of the church are meant to be this tangible touch point for us that opens our eyes and trains us to see all of life as sacramental. We learn to see every bush, not just the one Moses met God at, right? It wasn't a special bush, necessarily, 
we learn to see every bush aflame with God's presence. That's what the sacraments are meant to train us into, to seeing all of life as sacramental. So, uh, and I mentioned this before, but sacraments uh, in, in the Anglican view of things are not just ordinances. Have, any, have you guys ever heard that term, ordinance? Um, oftentimes an ordinance is, a, a church that doesn't have a sacramental tradition will oftentimes refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances, which just means that the Lord ordered us to do them. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so almost as an act of blind faith, we do it. Well, I don't know. Let's do it. You know, I, I don't know what's happening here. Um, but um, we'll talk about this here in a second. But we believe something more is happening than just we're, do, we're doing something Jesus told us to do. Um, we believe that God is working in the sacraments. That's the difference, right? For an ordinance, it just means, well, here's my, here's my obedience to you, Lord. A sacrament means actually God meets us and participates in this, in this thing with us, okay? So God works in the sacraments, not just us. Um, all right, so a quick diagram here to talk about um, something called sacramental ontology, all right? You guys know what ontology is? How many of you guys have heard that term, ontology? Ontology just has to do with, um, it's kind of the same thing as uh, metaphysics. It has to do with how do we perceive what's real? What's actually real in the world? Um, and so it, ontology deals with basic issues of, basic issues of reality, um, and most importantly, how we understand the relationship between the tangible world around us, the things we can see and taste and touch and feel, that those things and the spiritual world, which is just as real, but isn't as tangible, right, um, through our senses. So everyone has an ontology, believe it or not. You have an ontology. You have one. Uh, whether it's articulated or not, you have a way of perceiving what is real about the world. And most of us, uh, most of us would say we believe in God, right? I mean, if, that, if that's not you, that's, that's fine. But uh, most of us would say we believe in God, and so we have some sense that there is a reality beyond what we can see and touch and taste, right? Um, however, most of us also have inherited an ontology from the, uh, the, the modern world. And the modern world has an ontology that says the only things that are actually real are the things that we can perceive with our senses. And so religion, I could, say, I could talk a long time about this, but I'm trying to condense this, okay? Religion then is seen as the realm of, well, that's just like that. If that helps you feel good, then you can go ahead and do it, right? But it doesn't actually name anything that's real about the world. What's real is this room and, you know, the building materials and our bodies and all of that kind of, that's what's real. And the, the God stuff, well, you know. Who knows what's going on there? But that's probably not real. That's, that's just something that's happening in your head. That's feelings that you have you know, in your body. And so there's this relentless drive to sort of explain away every spiritual reality in our modern world. And we're all inheritors of that. We actually cannot help but have a modern way of seeing the world. And the sacraments, one of the things that the sacraments can do for modern people like us is re-enchant us to help us realize that every bush is on fire with God's presence. That you and I are on fire with God's presence. That God's glory is shining in your face and in mine. And we can learn to perceive this by participating in the sacraments. So, most of the time, I think most of us have this ontology that sees God as one thing right here. And then sees creation as this other thing down here. 
right? So God, yeah, God created the world. Um, God, you know, made all this stuff happen. But God is not in the world. God is separate from the world. And again, we probably wouldn't ever articulate it this way. But this is the, this is the sense that we have about the world that's, that we've been given. Is that you guys have ever heard that famous uh, watchmaker parable like God just like created the watch and then he like what did he do he let it go right and so we're just sort of like sometimes we can call on God and maybe God will do a little extra zapping for us you know if we're good enough or if we pray hard enough or we have enough faith but he's not really here he's somewhere else Um, there's an orthodox theologian uh, who talks about this as the two-story universe story meaning not narrative but uh, floors in a building right and so the second story is where God lives, you know. So if you can imagine this as a basement and then there's an upper floor up there. And God lives up there. And we don't really know what he's doing. And every once in a while we hear some thumping. And every once in a while we can maybe take a broom and say like, hey, please, you know, help us with some stuff. Right? And maybe, maybe something good will happen. But God is basically up there. And we're basically down here. And God might care about us, but he's not here. He's somewhere else. And a lot of us have inherited this. This kind, of, this kind of an ontology. Um, however, the ontology that the sacraments show us and invite us into is this kind of an ontology, where God and creation are not the same thing. That would be pantheism. So God and creation aren't the same thing, but God is in creation and works through creation. So this is a permanent state of affairs for us. One way of thinking about this is that at the end of time, right? Um, well, maybe it's not the end of time, but uh, when Jesus comes back, right? The end, the end things, Revelation 21 um, and 22. One way of thinking about that is that this overlap will become you know, less and less. And that, that we'll, we'll just be in a universe where we, we never have a lack of perception of God's presence with us. Yeah? So the sacraments are meant to teach us this, that God works in and through creation, not in spite of creation. So a couple other ways to think about this. Um, the difference between like what we're talking about with sacraments and what we normally think of as symbols. Um, think about a road sign with a deer on it. What does that mean? Anybody? Watch out for deer, right? It doesn't mean like look out for this sign. Right? I mean, it would, probably wouldn't be good to hit the sign. You'd crash your car. But you wouldn't kill a deer if you hit the sign. Right? The sign is meant to tell you something about something else. Right? It's just a message about something that's not present in the sign. It's just like, hey, look out for deer. There's deer around here. You might hit one if you're not careful. Right? A sacrament, however... Would be, this is one way of saying this is that their relationship is completely nominal. The sign and the deer, just the sign, all it does is name another reality, deer, which is somewhere else, doesn't have anything to do with the sign. Yeah? Sacraments are different. Sacraments actually participate in the mysterious reality to which they point. So uh, the way that theologians talk about this is that sign and reality co inhere with one another. Okay, so the sacrament participates in the reality to which it points. So a sacramental relationship implies that the reality to which it points is present in the sign. Remember, a sacrament is a sure and certain means of receiving the grace that the sign signifies. So it would be as if hitting the sign killed a deer. That would be a sacrament, like a sacrament would, (laughs) if that sign was a sacrament, 
like there would be consequences for the deer if you hit the sign. That's one way of thinking about it. How many of you guys have ever read Harry Potter? Another, another uh, way of thinking about this is um, a horcrux. It's kind of like an anti-sacrament, right? Uh, because it's, a horcrux is where Voldemort stores little pieces of his soul. He's the bad guy in the, in the story. Um, he stores little pieces of his soul so that he can never die, right? Because if you kill his body, he's still got this little piece of soul hidden in this little trinket, you know, that he's hidden in some other place. And he can sort of, you know, draw on that life and reconstitute his body, um, that kind of a thing. So the way to kill Voldemort is to, is to shatter the horcruxes. Right? To actually destroy them. And so in destroying the Horcrux, you destroy a part of Voldemort's soul. So, I don't know. That's where my mind goes. Is like That's kind of like an anti-sacrament. It's very similar in the sense that the, the trinket or wherever Voldemort has uh, stored his soul, it co-inheres with Voldemort's soul. To destroy the trinket is to destroy Voldemort. Right? To hit the sign would be to kill a deer. That's the way that sacraments work. Um, one, one other way we see this in the, in the scriptures is uh, the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, uh, when he's going to Damascus to persecute Christians, he is knocked off his horse, right, by this blinding light, and Jesus speaks to him. And what does Jesus say to him? You guys remember? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the people I love or my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus identifies with his church in such a way that the church is a sacrament of the presence of Christ. To persecute the church is to persecute the Lord of the church. Does that make sense? Jesus is present in the church. So if, if one of us is hurt, you know, Jesus feels it. Because Jesus, we're the sacrament of uh, the presence of Jesus. So uh, the church has always believed this since its early days. Sacraments participate in the reality to which they point uh, because all of creation participates in this deeper reality of God's presence. Okay, so the sacraments are touch points for a bigger reality. The sacraments don't contain God, right? It's not like, well, unless you come to church and you get bread and wine, like you can't meet with God. Like they don't contain God. They're meant to be a portal through which we can see God everywhere. Yeah? All right. Um, Another scripture, Acts 17, 27 and 28. Um, Paul is uh, talking to the, uh, where is he at? Is Athens, I think. And he's, he's talking to these pagans and inviting them into, you know, uh, believing in Jesus. And he says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He's not talking to Christians here, right? He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's another way of talking about God's sacramental presence in the world. God is present in creation and works through creation. Colossians 1.17 as well. He is before all things, this is Jesus, and in him all things hold together. So Christ is actively holding us together. Part of the reason that the molecules on the earth and in our bodies don't just fly off and go in random directions is that Christ is here, actively holding us together. Okay? So that's, that, that's, that's what sacraments are meant to do for us. They're meant to open us up to this world of enchantment. They open us, open us up into this world where God is present in creation all the time and working through creation all the time. He's not in opposition to creation. He doesn't every once in a while come in and zap us, although miracles happen and they're wonderful. Miracles are wonderful. But all of creation is a miracle as well. 
right? It's this unfolding miracle of God's presence in the physical world. All right. That's probably enough on that for now. Um, let me pause here and see if... Well, actually, no. Sorry. One second. Let me, let me uh, talk about the two sacraments of the gospel and a couple other sacramental rites. We'll pause for some questions, and then we'll, start, then we'll talk about worship. Okay? Um, so, um, specifically then, the sacraments, the two sacraments of the gospel that are given to us, we call them sacraments of the gospel because they are specifically uh, commanded and instituted by Jesus. And one of them is holy baptism. The other one's holy communion. Okay? So, baptism, the outward and visible sign is... Water and words. So the words of baptism are important, just as important as the water. So the water and then the words that are spoken in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're baptized into the name of the Trinity. Uh, the inward and spiritual grace that comes to us through that outward and visible sign is death to sin and new life, new birth into righteousness and into union with Christ through his death and resurrection. So death and resurrection happen in baptism. That's the inward and spiritual grace that happens through the outward and visible sign of water and the words that are spoken. Um, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like being born. <laughs> you know, um, you just do it once. So baptism, it just happens once for us because it's, it's the sacrament of being born, essentially. We're born anew into God's kingdom, um, which is why we baptize babies. Uh, that we could talk more about this if you have questions about it. But infant baptism comes from this, that they, infants, babies, before they can believe... They are embraced into the covenant community of the church. Um, adults in faith and, 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 and repentance present infants to be baptized and promise to raise them as Christians in the expectation they will one day profess the Christian faith as their own, which happens in confirmation. Okay? So if you've ever heard of, like if you were ever part of like the emerging church or the missional church kind of stuff and belong before believe, that's infant baptism. Basically, right? That's belonging before you believe. And this is how we raise our kids, right? This is, we don't, you know, we don't wait to see what they want to call themselves, right? Although some kids change their names. But we don't, we, we, we raise them as a part of the family, right? We don't let them pick what time they would like to eat. With them. They come to the table and we eat together, right? Not every family does that. But I'm saying that we have rituals and rhythms, right? We don't just let our kids do anything they want until they're old enough to decide for themselves. No, we invite them into our life together. So that's infant baptism, um, belonging before believing. Uh, the second sacrament of the gospel is Holy Communion, um, which the outward and visible sign is bread and wine, right? And the words spoken around the table, words of remembrance and the words of consecration. Uh, the Greek words for that, if you're interested, are anamnesis and epiclesis. And so two important parts of that prayer so it isn't, it isn't the exact arrangement of those words that's important, but what is important is the remembrance, the prayer of remembrance. So we always pray, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he broke bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. And then the other important part of that prayer is the epiclesis, where we call upon the Holy Spirit to um, sanctify the bread and the wine, uh, to be for us the body and blood of Christ. So we're calling upon the Holy Spirit. And so there's all kinds of crazy debates uh, in liturgical uh, theology about when certain things happen or, you know, what, what the most important prayer is or does, you know, does, does it become the body and blood at this point or at that point. Um, and for the, one of the things I appreciate about, appreciate about Anglican theology for the most part is that um, they don't really care about those questions. 
for most Anglicans, um, so for example, uh, I think it's Catholicism that puts a lot of emphasis on the words of institution. And the Orthodox Church puts a lot of emphasis on the prayer of consecration, the epiclesis. But um, I've heard the Anglicans place a lot of prayer on just the amen at the end of the whole thing. <laughs> just like, we don't know what's happening, but God's here. So amen, right? So that's, what, that's why we, we, we've trained our church to, to shout that last amen. Um, because all this we ask through our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and to him and to, uh, to you and to the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, so, God, like those words are important, right? So in Holy Communion. Um, so those two prayers and the, the bread and the wine and then the inward and spiritual grace in Holy Communion is the body and blood of Christ. You know, what does that mean? Anglicans say, we don't know. But Jesus said it was his body and it was good for us. And so we take it and we receive it. Um, but we also know that we receive strengthening and refreshing of our soul. We also know that the body of Christ together is knit together in communion with one another. So it's not just an individualistic feast. It's not just me and my private time with God up there. We are being knit together as Christ's body. That's part of the grace that happens in communion. Which is why a couple weeks ago... During my sermon, I told you all to come to church <laughs> uh, because that's what's happening in the, in the meal. It's not just a private thing for me just when I, when I want it. We're actually being knit together as Christ's body. So there's something more that's happening here. Um, yeah, there's a lot I could say about it. We believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It's a participation in Christ, a koinonia. Um, it's rooted in the incarnation. Um, Jesus, uh, God, God enters into creation and joins it to himself, right? God becomes human in the person of Christ. Christ's presence becomes real to us in bread and wine. And so we tangibly participate in the sacrament. So um, there are other sacramental rites uh, that the church has embraced over time. So again, they're not meant to contain the presence of God in Holy Communion and Holy Baptism. They are meant to open us up to how all of life is sacramental. And there are other uh, sacramental rites that seem to be places where God meets us uh, with his presence in a special way. Um, so two sacraments of the gospel, but then there's also confirmation, absolution, ordination, marriage, and the anointing of the sick. Those have all been called sacramental rites in the church. Um, they're not commanded as Christ, by Christ as necessary for salvation, but they arise from the practice of the apostles in the early church. Uh, and they are states of life that seem to be blessed by God from creation. And God clearly seems to use them as a means of grace. Again, we receive grace through the tangible outward sign. Um, it's worth saying, too, the patristic world, uh, the, the church fathers, the early church, they were hesitant to limit the sacraments to two or even to seven, you know, that wider range of sacraments. They were hesitant to limit the sacraments because all of life is sacramental, what we talked about beginning here. Um, so they're meant to train us to experience, in present, the, the, to experience the presence and power of God through the created order. And they're meant to train us to do that all the time. Like the goal is for us to live in a constant state of awareness and participation in the presence and the power of God through the Holy Spirit. That's the goal. And there's a lot more I could say about it. I will say that just this, that our, this is where sacramental ontology and sacramental theology touches our DNA groups, okay? Our DNA groups are meant to train us to see how is God at work in my actual life, right? And that flows from how is God at work in bread and wine in this worship service? How is God at work in water, the words, 
of baptism. How is God at work there? That's meant to train us to pay attention. How is God at work here? In my life, in my frustrations, in my annoyances, in, the, in my shame, in my joy. What's God doing? And we learn how to do that together. Um, but it flows, it's connected to the church. It's connected to the sacraments. It's a way of learning to live sacramentally. All right. Okay. Um, so I've handed this out to you, friends. We're, we're going to move on and talk about worship now, which obviously relates to sacraments, but uh, is a little bit of a larger category. So I've handed out this liturgy walkthrough for you guys, and it's got some space for notes on the, on the margins there. So if you want to take any notes, uh, feel free to. But I just want to walk us through our worship service briefly, um, talk about kind of why some of these things are here. Uh, I, could, I could probably talk about this for three hours, four hours. I'm not going to. Um, but your questions uh, will lead us into what more we want to say uh, about this stuff, okay? Um, so just to say this, worship at the table is a big deal. Um, and I think that, in, but in our day and age, this is vastly misunderstood. To say that worship is a big deal, most people misunderstand that immediately. In one of two ways. Uh, for a lot of churches, like worship is the Sunday morning show that attracts people so the church can grow. And so they design everything around that. They, you know, this is kind of the seeker-sensitive thing that happened you know, in the, in the uh, when did that happen, 80s, 90s? Um, the seeker-sensitive thing that happened in the 90s, we need to be relevant. We need to like, you know, give people a good show and invite them in and like, give them a great time and great coffee and you know, all that kind of thing. And there's, there's some good hospitality instincts in there that I think you know, the church needed to learn. But oftentimes that, that image of like worship is really important, it just is like a... It can be an ego trip for the pastor, you know, to get a big church uh, going, that kind of thing. And, you know, the key to planting a church, I mean, when I planted my first church, I heard this over and over. The key to planting a church is providing a smooth, comfortable, inspiring event that people want to come back to, like a concert, right? Um, the trouble becomes people treat it like a concert, you know? It's like I go to a concert, you know, when I, when I feel like it, and I, I don't go if I don't really feel like it, you know what I mean? Like that, we... we We've sort of shaped the worship into that mode of thinking, um, kind of like an if you build it, they will come. And, you know, and they do for the most part. Uh, there's a well-worn formula for getting people to like at least certain kinds of people. It's white people uh, to come to church. Right. Um, that's the homogenous unit principle. Um, but others then, including myself, have a deep allergy to this. We're like, Ugh, no, I don't want to do that. But then what ends up happening is we sort of ditch worship as unimportant. We say like, what? it's not about the Sunday gathering, it's about, you know, we're going to gather in small groups, and so we're going to start a house church, or we're going to start just little things that, that's all we're going to do, it's just little things, and we're not going to ever worship uh, together. Uh, because they associate that whole other thing with worship, they sort of minimize and denigrate the traditional Sunday morning worship thing as frivolous or distracting. Um, and, you know, we've got friends who left that big church environment to start little house churches because of this allergy. Um, people who thought about like joining us at the table even who uh, didn't want to because they learned that we were going to have a Sunday morning worship service. That was going to be a big part of who we were. So um, there's a lot I can say about it, but this, this way of thinking about worship is very new um, and it's distinctly American. Um, but the way that we work, uh, the way that we think about worship, um, what worship is and what it's for as we look at it from a scriptural standpoint and we look at it from a historical standpoint, we learn that it's not a lecture where I learn new things about God. It's not a TED talk where I get my mind blown every Sunday um, by new things I didn't know about God before. 
It is not Jesus-themed entertainment, right? It's not like, man, I sure hope they play my favorite song on Sunday. It is not Jesus-themed entertainment where we can just be distracted from the trials and tribulations of life for a little while, when we need it, you know, when we need a little pick-me-up. It's also not a Holy Spirit pep rally where we go when we need to get pumped up about God again. Man, I feel like my, my, my spiritual life is in the doldrums. I need to get pumped up about God. So what is worship? Why do we worship? Why do we do this every Sunday as a church? Um, there's a quote from a theologian named Simon Chan, and he says this, the church's defining characteristic is its worshipful response to the call of God to be his people. Worshiping God is the hallmark of the people of God. That's what makes us the people of God, is worshiping God. So everything else we do, mission, good works, community, all of that stuff, it flows from and unto worship. Everything we do as God's people is ultimately done as an act of worship, and we learn how to worship with our whole lives by worshiping together at set times, right? So pray, pray without ceasing. Well, how do you learn to do that? You pray at specific times. Try that, you know, first. <laughs> you know, don't try to pray without ceasing before you pray uh, in the morning. You know, try that. Try that first. And so how do we worship with our whole lives? Well, we learn how to do it as we worship on Sunday. We come together. We do this together. We learn what it means then to worship with our whole lives. Um, so this is a little definition uh, I'm playing around with. But I would say that this, worship is a communal encounter with the presence of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit whereby we are formed as God's people and sent out as the body of Christ. So it's a communal encounter. It's not just a private thing. We do this together. We are actually encountering the presence of God in Christ, right, through bread and wine, but also preaching is sacramental. The reading of scripture is sacramental. Um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's God's presence in our midst, and what happens in worship, as we do this together, encountering Christ, we are formed as God's people and then sent out as the body of Christ, which, as we learned before, is the sacrament of Christ's presence in the world. Our life together is Christ's presence in the world, at least the sacrament of it. It doesn't contain it, but it's the sacrament of it. So it's communal. It's an encounter. We're formed as we do it. We're sent out as we do it. We become the body of Christ as we do it. Um, so that's what worship is. The reason that we have this structure for our worship, um, the, way, the way it's structured. So, so worship, I should say this, it's not just about singing. Sometimes we have that. That's another thing we inherited from kind of an American evangelical tradition. And we think that worship is, oh, that's the singing part. And then we do some other stuff. In the Anglican tradition, the whole thing is worship. From the, from the moment you walk into the building to the moment you're sent out, it's worship. That whole thing is worship. Sometimes we sing our worship. Sometimes we say our worship. Sometimes we listen our worship. Sometimes we body our worship. But we're worshiping the whole time. When we're listening, we're worshiping. When we're speaking, we're worshiping. When we're bodying, we're worshiping. Um, so our worship is uh, according to a liturgical tradition. But every church is actually liturgical, right? There's no church that you can go to where you have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> right? Every church, you have an idea. What's gonna, you come twice and you're like, okay, I get it. We sing a few songs. We do the announcements. We do the offering. There's a sermon. We pray for people. That's it. That's the, that's the, maybe sometimes you mix it up, but that's your liturgy, right? It's never a complete surprise. And so why do we have the liturgy that we have? So everybody has a liturgy. Even the most free churches have a liturgy. Everybody knows when to sit, stand, sing, you know, listen. But how do you know if it's good? 
right? Is this just preference? Or are there liturgies that are good and liturgies that are not so good? I would argue the latter. It's not just preference. Uh, Michael Ramsey, um, former Archbishop of Canterbury, said this, um, the liturgy is only as good as its ability to proclaim the gospel. And I would add in symbol and action, right? So it's proclaiming the gospel, but that's, that's, happening at, that's happening in the reading of scripture. That's happening in the preaching of the word. It's also happening at the table in the, in the giving of bread and wine with the words, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. So um, it's not just a style thing. Um, because the gospel is proclaimed and embodied in word and action, the means by which we encounter God and are formed by God's spirit to be the body of Christ are through worship. So we need to learn how to do this uh, together. So we have a set liturgy. Um, and I could talk more about this, where we get this from, but it's, it's biblical, like it's rooted in Jewish liturgy, actually. Uh, it's historical, um, especially like Justin Martyr's first apology, he which is from the year like 150 AD. He lays out a pattern for worship that is remarkably similar to what we do today. Uh, it's beautiful. Beauty is an important part of our worship. Um, this, you know, it's not just about our abstract ideas, it's about our senses, right? So we want things to look and smell and be beautiful. That's important um, because it communicates something of who God is to us. Uh, and it's formative. So we don't merely think our way into right action. We practice habits of faith. So our Sunday liturgy is a habit. It's a practice. It's something that we do together that forms us. So the pattern, the overall pattern, if you look at your liturgy walkthrough, um, the overall pattern is listed by these, um, see the gathering is the body of Christ there at the top. Anything in that font with those lines on it names a major move in our liturgy. So gathering as the body of Christ, turn to page two. You'll see at the top of page two, listening for the word of God. That's the second move. So first we gather as God's people from our various locations. Second, we listen for God's word, speaking through scripture. At the top of the third page, we commune at the table. This is Holy Eucharist um, or the altar as it's sometimes called which means we receive God's uh, grace at the altar in the Eucharist. And then the back page, we're sent out. We're sending into mission, okay? The two major pillars there are word and table, right? That God's word is, the gospel is proclaimed, and then the gospel is embodied. That's one way of thinking about it. We are prepared for the table and then fulfilled at the table. We receive revelation and we respond. The two major pillars and then gathering and sending are the kind of the bookends to the two major pillars uh, for worship. Um, there's reflection and participation. Different ways of talking about word and table, right? We reflect on God's word as we listen to a sermon preached and then we participate in the gospel as we receive the bread and the wine. Um, so you'll hear us constantly in our liturgy. This is like little turn signals that you'll hear uh, Matt and Spencer and I talk about it. and the other leaders um, will say like we've heard it proclaimed therefore let us boom right that that's our way of sort of reorienting us to be like why are we doing this right now oh we've heard it proclaimed now we do this now we offer our now we offer our substance you know in the offertory we've heard it proclaimed now we come to the table we've heard it proclaimed now we're going to sing right so everything is a response to what God has done for us uh, at the table uh, in, in giving us the gospel um, a couple notes on gestures, and then we'll dive into this a little bit more in detail. Um, gestures. How many of you guys have ever seen somebody do this in our worship service? Yes? 
Many of you do this in our worship service. Making the sign of the cross, for example. Kneeling uh, during communion. We've got a kneeling rail. That's a lovely uh, thing that we get to do during communion. All of these ways, we stand at certain points, right? Um, all of these things are just ways of praying with our bodies, right? It's another way of kind of getting us out of the headspace of, uh, of the modern world, which says it's all about abstract ideas, right? Which is why I, like, I think a lot of us are uncomfortable praying with our bodies. But you'll see people raise their hands. Like that's a charismatic kind of way of praying, like during singing. That's fine. It's wonderful. It's a way of praying with your body. Making the sign of the cross is a way of just saying, I belong to Christ. May my whole life take on an ever more cruciform shape. We bow. A lot of, you'll see a lot of bowing at the altar. Um, that's also, you guys are welcome to do that with us um, when we bow at the altar. Um, there's bowing at certain points to indicate reverence. It's a way of praying uh, reverently um, at certain points in the liturgy. Um, yeah, okay. Does that make sense? Just want to make a note on that. Um, okay, let's walk through the liturgy real quick, and then we'll see if there's any questions. So, go back to page one. Gathering is the body of Christ. Um, there is a call... First of all, a call to worship in silence. We start our worship like this um, uh, because everything is rooted. We, it, this, worship, is not, worship is a response. Even coming here to the building is a response to God's call. It's a response to something God is doing. And so that call to worship is always going to be a little bit of a proclamation of good news. At least you'll, most of the time you'll hear that God is here. That God is here. God is present. So let's... Pay attention to that. And our silence is a response to that proclamation that God is here and calling us into worship. Let's be quiet and respond. Okay? So that's the call uh, to worship in silence. And then there's an opening acclamation and collect for purity. Um, a lot more we could say about this, but this is how we open our service. We, we open our service by blessing God. Blessed be God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of scriptures that talk like this, 1 Peter 1, 3, um, etc. And then uh, we respond with a song of praise. Uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, it says the Gloria, or some other song of praise, is said or sung. And so last week, I think we actually sung the Gloria, which is a very ancient hymn. Um, that's the one that goes, you know, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. You guys remember that one? That's a very old hymn, uh, and it's written in our liturgy as like a standard song that you could sing. We usually just pick one uh, that, that we want to sing there. So that's our uh, response to that. During Lent, it's a little different. We don't sing a song of praise there. We sing um, the, uh, the Lord have mercy. We sing that, and we oftentimes will, during a penitential rite, we'll confess our sins there instead of later on when we normally do it. So after the song, there is a collect of the day. Um, collect is a word that just means it's uh, a prayer that collects, in a way, the prayers of God's people. And it's prayed by uh, whoever's leading at that point on behalf of the people. And there's a collect for every Sunday uh, of the church year. Um, and it's also meant to be prayed throughout the week. So that's why we print it in the booklet as well, is that you can take this booklet home and, you know, or you could find it in the Book of Common Prayer. But that's a, that's a, it's a very specific form of prayer um, that involves an address to God and uh, some kind of declaration of an attribute or action of God, a specific request of God, and then often a reason for that request with a uh, kind of a Christological flourish at the end. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, so I put the, the collect for, one of the collects for today on there for you guys to see. Oh God, there's the address. Here's who we're talking to. Whose blessed son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. 
There's the action of God that we're declaring. Here's the request. Grant that, having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure. And then here's the reason for the request. That when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom where he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. There's the flourish at the end. One God forever and ever. Amen. So we, we always pray a collect every week. And that's kind of our prayer of the week. It orients us um, to our life together. Uh, then we bless the children and send them out. Um, this is our, the time that we have. The kids have their own separate time to kind of hear God's word and respond while the adults do the same thing. Um, we respond to good news. Uh, it, sorry, missed a, missed a spot here. Oh, there we go. So then we listen for the word. So scripture is read. I said this before. The reading of scripture is sacramental. So we're not just listening for information. We are tending to the presence of Christ. As, as the words of God are read, we are encountering Christ. Like God is addressing us, right? So we listen in that way. The gospel is read. That's a special kind of thing. We read it from that gospel book, which is kind of a sacramental object. Um, we all, the, the gospel reader, who's uh, normally traditionally a deacon in the church, brings the gospel book and kind of does this little processional into the midst of the people. God's word is proclaimed from the midst of the people. We all turn to face the gospel book, right? It's this honor, a sign of honor um, for the, the specific words and actions of Jesus. That's why the gospel is treated a little bit differently. There's some debate about whether we should do that or not. But uh, that's what we do now. And uh, yeah, and then we stand to listen with that prayer, um, a little cross on our foreheads, a little cross on our lips, a little cross on our heart. Basically saying may the words of God be in my mind and on my lips and in my heart. All right. That's a, psalm. That's a prayer from the Psalms. Um, and then good news is proclaimed. That's the sermon. Um, there's a lot I can say about our sermons, but they are essentially meant to be proclamations of good news that involve teaching sometimes, but they're not primarily teaching. Not like what I'm doing now. What we do in a sermon is, is different work. It's a different kind of work. So God's word is proclaimed and then we respond. So now we're on page two here. Um, sorry, the Nicene Creed is read before the sermon. Um, we do, that, that's, that a lot of churches do it the other way around where the Nicene Creed is read as a response to the sermon. That's fine and good. Um, we like to have prayer be the response to the sermon. And so, because we write these prayers that are kind of specific to the good news, so we put the creed uh, as a response to the reading of the gospel. So as the gospel is proclaimed, and then we proclaim the gospel. That's what the Nicene Creed is, is a shorthand of the gospel. The sermon is proclaimed, good news is proclaimed, and then we pray. So there's a prayer that's responding to good news, and then we also take up our authority as Christ's ambassadors to pray for the world and for the church. Uh, moves from there into the confession of sin as we approach the table. Uh, the absolution, which again is a sacramental rite, that, that gesture, the sign of the cross, that's a time when people make the sign of the cross, and that's a sacramental rite um, of forgiveness of sins, the absolution. And then the peace, the peace of the Lord be always with you, and also with you, and then we share with one another a sign of peace. Um, and again, I could dive into a lot more detail uh, on any of these things. Um, but the peace, uh, I could say with this about the peace, the peace is there because we come to the table as reconciled people, right? Think of Matthew 5 where Jesus says, don't, don't come to worship if, somebody, if you know somebody has something against you. What's more important is to make sure that you reconcile. And so we come, we come to the table not as individuals who are expecting a treat from God. We come as a body of people who have been reconciled by Christ, reconciled to Christ and to one another to be formed and shaped as the body of Christ. And so the peace is a, is a, is a liturgical way of proclaiming our unity 
uh, with one another. It's also a time where, for me, I have realized that I sometimes do have something against someone. I have a little resentment in my heart. Um, and I don't always have, it's not always appropriate to deal with it out loud right there. I sometimes have done that. I've gone to somebody and said, hey, I'm sorry. Or, you know, I need, we, we need to talk about this, right? It's a reminder of, for me. Um, but at least it's a, it's a way for me to recognize when we come to the table, our reconciliation with each other is a, is a really big deal. Um, yeah, and then we proclaim the peace with each other, which, you know, I love the fact that it takes a while for us to do this in our church, uh, just because everybody likes being with each other. It speaks to me that we're a reconciled people, but it's not a coffee break. Um, we do need to come to the table um, if, we, uh, uh, if we're going to get out of here before one. So, you know, that's, we, we've started ringing a bell to kind of bring everybody back, um, which is fun. Uh, I like doing that. So. All right, so that is the word proclaimed. Now we go into the gospel embodied. Um, we commune at the table so that we, we start this with the offertory and the doxology. And um, this is because uh, communing at the table is our ultimate response. This is the altar call every week. So if you come out of like a Baptist tradition where you love having an altar call every week, we got altar calls every week too. So it's just, just come to the table every week. Every week we get saved. It's awesome. Um, so uh, we, come, we come to the table. We bring the bread and wine. Representatives from the congregation bring the bread and wine to the, to the altar. And that there's tons of symbolism here that I just love. Um, but this is something that we've made, right? So we've taken God's gift to us in grapes and in uh, wheat, and we have shaped and formed it into bread and wine, and we bring it to God as bread and wine. And then what does God do? God takes that. Jesus takes that bread and wine, and he transforms it again for us to be his body and his blood. And so there's this beautiful sort of reciprocal self-giving, I think, that happens in these, in these gestures. So that's what those people, when they walk down the aisle during that first offertory song, they're bringing bread and wine. And then the plates are passed. And this is a way for us to, um, uh, to offer ourselves to God. Because the first, off, the first prayer that we'll get to here is an offering of ourselves to God. And so as a symbol of that, we offer our substance, right? So many of us give online that it's, we, we didn't pass the plates for a long time. Um, and actually, we, we actually prefer you give online. It really helps us budget, you know, and all that kind of thing. So that's fine. But we did start to uh, get these little wooden tokens that allow us to participate in the liturgical act of offering. And so you'll see those out there. And feel free to grab one, if, especially if you give online. Um, feel free to grab one and, and place that in the basket as it goes by. It just as this liturgical act of saying, Lord, I'm, I'm giving to you, you know, of my substance. Uh, because I think that's one thing that we lose. Like all of my bills get paid online and I never think about it, right? I never thank the Lord for electricity every morning. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't think about it. And so I like the act of kind of placing that wooden token in the basket as a way of saying, I'm doing this on purpose, you know, and I'm bringing my whole self to you today, Lord, to receive from you at your table. Um, all right, and then uh, when we gather up all the gifts, the doxology is sung and we come to the table. The deacon has been setting the table uh, during that time. And then there's this, this set of prayers. We won't go into these uh, in too much detail, but the sursum corda, which is, uh, I think, Latin, just for lift up your hearts, right? So the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. This is our offering to God uh, of thanksgiving and praise. And so then um, it is right, indeed, our, it's, it's right for us to do this. And there's a, usually a proper preface that's said. And then we go into the sanctus, right? The holy, 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 where you'll see us bow. You're welcome to bow as well. Um, 
because what that's representing is that at this altar, we're actually entering into heaven, or heaven is entering into this space. Like that's, that's the, so, the song that's sung in Revelation 4, 8 by the living creatures. So it's like, holy, 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 God is here, especially now, especially in this act. Um, we go from that into the prayer of consecration, which is uh, usually there's this brief story of salvation. So you'll hear about being created. You'll hear about the fall. You'll hear about Jesus coming. You'll hear about the crucifixion. You'll hear about the resurrection. And I especially love um, the trampling of hell and Satan. Uh, that's part of our prayers as well. So I uh, we love that one. Um, and then we proclaim the mystery of faith, which we're going to try to sing again uh, this Sunday. Uh, we, we're learning. It's, it's going to be fun. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And then, as I said before, this all gets gathered up. All this we ask through your, through your uh, Son, our Lord. Amen. And, that's, uh, and then we pray the Lord's Prayer together. We sing it together. And then the fraction. We break the bread. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And then this uh, proclamation, um, as we sing the Lamb of God, the proclamation of um, what, what this meal means, right? Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Church, behold what you are, become what you receive, the body of Christ. And then we take communion together. Um, you guys know how that goes. We pray a post-communion prayer, and then on the back page, most of our announcements we save for the sending into mission because this involves our life together. Out of, out of this space, table groups, different things that are happening. And then the blessing. The priest gives a blessing at the end, and the deacon dismisses the people. That's our worship. Um, let's take, we've got a few minutes here. Um, let's take some time and just see if you guys have any comments or questions. Like I said, I can dive into all kinds of stuff, depending on where you're at and what you want to hear about. So uh, to recapitulate, worship is this communal encounter with the presence of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are formed as God's people and sent out as the body of Christ. So in Anglican worship, you don't need to generate any energy to make anything happen. The liturgy carries us all along. You also don't need to beg God to come and do anything. He's already here waiting to encounter us. You don't need to get everyone to come forward for an altar call because we all come forward every Sunday to the altar to receive the Eucharist. And you don't need to drum up any intense emotions, just receive the bread and the wine and participate in the body and blood of Christ. This was the comfort that I uh, received, I think, in the liturgical tradition, is the, like knowing that I don't have to be in a certain mental state, I don't have to be in a certain emotional state, I just need to bring my hands and receive the bread and the wine, and I'm encountering God. Um, so let's do that. Amen? Amen. Worship starts in 30 minutes. <laughs>